0: If we don't exercise our brains, if we're not paying attention to our environment, if we're not noticing things around us, if we're not paying attention to where we are and having to navigate and explore our environment, then the parts of the brain that usually do that will degenerate and we will lose that ability. Um, maybe that's, that's fine. If all we want to do is just sit on the couch and look at our phones, that's fine.
1: That's Joe Marchant author of a book titled The Human Cosmos, Civilization and the Stars, talking about what we're in danger of losing as we narrow our view of the universe to strictly scientific terms. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, the creator of Cosmic Log and your host for the Fiction Science Podcast, which focuses on the intersection of science and the stories that we tell. In this installment of Fiction Science, I'll be talking with Joe Marchant about the growing disconnect between humanity and the heavens. Jo Marchant is an award-winning science journalist who's worked as a senior editor for New Scientist and Nature and has also written about science for The Guardian, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and other top-drawer publications. She's the author of Cure, a book about the role that the mind plays in medicine, and Decoding the Heavens, which explores the mysteries surrounding the ancient Greek computer known as the Antikythera mechanism. In her new book, The Human Cosmos, she traces how humanity's perspective on the cosmos has changed over the course of millennia. Spoiler alert, there have been some downsides. As the creator of Cosmic Log, how could I turn down a chance to talk with Joe about the book, and about how future discoveries might change our cosmic perspective? Give a listen to my Zoom conversation with Joe Marchant in London. Joe, thanks for coming on to talk about your book, The Human Cosmos, which frankly puts a somewhat different spin on a favorite subject of mine, our view of the wider universe. There's a standard model for such books. It goes way back to at least... Carl Sagan's Cosmos, where the author traces all the ways in which we've deepened our understanding of the way that the universe works, thanks to the blessings of science. Uh, You follow a similar trail, but you also end up noting that humanity may have lost an important part of the perspective along the way. And I'd love it if you could talk us through that point of view.
0: Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, I was interested in the sort of human relationship with the stars, with the cosmos, with our view of the heavens, if you like, starting from the very earliest cave paintings that we have from the Paleolithic coming right up until the present day. And of course, through science, we have a better understanding of the workings of the physical universe than we've ever had before. You know, we can see further than our senses can reach. We understand so many wonders about the cosmos. But yeah, at the same time, our our personal connection to the stars, so our our physical connection to, well, the sunlight and and moonlight and our view of the stars. From that point of view, we've never been more disconnected from the cosmos. So I'm interested in, how we built this scientific view, but I'm also interested in what have we lost? Does it matter that we can no longer see the stars? You know, we know from light pollution that most people in Europe and the US can no longer see the Milky Way, for example, with artificial lighting and heating and air travel and our computers and phones. We're we're living in a way that's more disconnected from the cycles of the sun and moon than ever before. So yeah, I was interested in what have we lost there? This view that every other society through history has had that we don't have.
1: Right. Uh, we've got GPS nowadays. Uh, people are talking about brain-computer interfaces. And so in the book, you talked about the Polynesian navigators who uh, told themselves story to, to help them get through the ocean and, and remember which guiding stars they should follow to keep on the right track. But now uh, we have other tools to do that. And, and I think a lot of people would probably ask, uh, well, that's okay. Who needs it?
0: Yeah, people have always needed the the sky to, you know, that's been the sort of definition of time, the sort of the mm-hmm. celestial movements, and also the sky to tell us where we are on the planet. And now we've, we have our clocks and the GPS, so yeah, we can tell where and when we are without even looking out of the window. And in terms of what we've lost, I mean, there there is some work showing that if you rely on GPS for navigation, for example, that the parts of the brain that normally deal with navigating with our sort of sense of spatial awareness actually become less active and start degenerating so there are abilities that we l- lose there and in the book I tell the story of um, Captain James Cook when he went on his first mission in the Pacific Ocean to Tahiti and how he came into contact with the navigators there in particular a priest called Tupaya because it was this wonderful clash of cultures between the sort of western navigators who were relying on accurate observations of the of the sky and their charts and their sort of instruments. And then the Polynesians who were using all of their human faculties. So the Polynesians were navigating using star compasses where they'd have to memorize the bearings of hundreds of different stars, these star paths that they would follow. And they did that by telling stories essentially like religious myths that these stars were entwined into so all of the stars had different identities um, and also incorporating all of their senses into that as well so they had the star compasses but then and the myths that went with those songs and chants that would help them to remember it but then also their own observations of water currents weather patterns wildlife that sort of thing so it's using the sort of taking advantage of the way that our human brains work if you like and doing that they were able to accurately navigate over thousands of kilometers of the pacific ocean um, which from the western perspective was completely impossible without the technology the measurements and, and the charts so it shows that we've in a way we think of our scientific approach with the technology as very superior but we've forgotten actually a lot of what we can do as human beings with our bodies and brains if we work with them so we're not very good at memorizing long lists of facts but we are very good at remembering stories
1: so would the argument be that the reliance on these external tools might encourage us to kind of go flabby intellectually and lose the edge that we need to make further innovations is that where you're going with this
0: Yeah. I mean, this is just one aspect. There are other aspects that I'm sure we'll talk about of our relationship with the stars. But in in terms of our reliance on technology, yeah, that's basically the idea that, you know, if we don't exercise physically, then we have bodies degenerate physically. Mm -hmm. Um, And similarly, if we don't exercise our brains, if we're not paying attention to our environment, if we're not noticing things around us, if we're not paying attention to where we are and having to navigate and explore our environment then the parts of the brain that usually do that will degenerate and we will lose that ability maybe that's fine if all we want to do is just sit on the couch and look at our phones Mm, kind of like in the movie wally just
1: kind of cruise around in our uh our little carriages on the spaceship and just let the robots do everything for us
0: Yeah, exactly. But there are also links to neurodegeneration and dementia as well. So the more we're using our brains, that is going to keep us sort of healthier and more mentally alert in, in the long run. But yeah, there's that connection to our environment and it gives meaning to our environment if we're being curious and creative and exploring and we're noticing things. And we just don't notice all of those little details. We lose that connection to our environment if we're outsourcing everything to technology.
1: And I suppose there's uh, something to be said for being aware of the environment, uh, even in terms of the challenges that we're facing with global warming. For example, the Western wildfires are just, uh, it's like a hellscape uh, in some places of the American West right now. I suppose this is where you get into trouble, where you you just find that you're not in touch with the environment and and, uh, a lot of people aren't able to relate so deeply to the climate change. Change challenge in order to do something about it. I, I don't know if that figures into the cosmic perspective, but it, it certainly is something where you can get into trouble if if you're not aware of what your environment is telling you.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely an aspect of our our disconnection with nature, and I would sort of include the stars in our natural environment. And this point also um, feeds in with some other research to do with the emotion of awe. So it's looking at what happens to us psychologically when we look at the stars? Scientists define awe as um, the emotion that you feel when you're confronted with something vast, so vast that you know, it dwarfs you in comparison and that's kind of beyond your, your ability to comprehend it, that kind of wow feeling. Um, and this is something that people feel when they look at the stars. One of the most common ways that scientists use to trigger awe in studies is to show people pictures or videos the starry skies and they're finding that when people feel awe it makes them more curious more more creative less stressed happier even weeks later but it also changes their perspective on their environment so people make more ethical decisions they're more likely to make sacrifices to help others they care less about money they care more about the planet they feel more connected to other people and the earth as a whole. Um, and there's quite interesting neuroscience research as well showing that when people feel awe, patterns of activity in the brain that have been associated with our sense of self actually decrease. So there's this idea of that awe induces a small self, that it sort of shifts our perspective so we feel part of something bigger rather than being obsessed with our, our own selfish daily concerns. Um, and I think that's really important because it's showing that if we're going to make wise, big picture decisions about how to live sustainably on this planet, how to feel connected to the planet and care about what happens to things beyond us, not just our own daily lives, then we need that awe. We need that to be confronted by the sort of raw vastness of, of, of nature, if you like, and the, and the stars. There's nothing sort of bigger than the cosmos.
1: I've got a couple of questions about that subject of awe. I, I, I love that part of the story. Uh, and I wondered whether in the course of your research, you came across stories like the ancient stories that uh, used to be told that help uh, promote that sense of awe, or perhaps the overview effect, uh, the feeling that there is a kinship with the cosmos.
0: Certainly in terms of connection. Yeah, I think this the myths told in ancient prehistoric times where people always saw life in the sky you know mythical beasts gods in the sky often seeing the celestial bodies as as gods with sort of their own personalities like moving through the celestial landscape almost Um, and I think that was doing some different things I think partly it was imposing some meaning and structure on that awesome vastness if you like that it's it's almost too terrifying to comprehend so by giving Giving these sort of animal and, and human attributes to the sort of characters they were seeing in the sky. It's, it's making that more controllable, more manageable. But also, I think you're right, it's promoting that sense of connection. It seems that the the initial human condition, so this is from looking at, at cave paintings, for example, from Babylonian celestial omens, there's lots of different examples, but, but people really didn't see a distinction between what happened in, on Earth And in the sky, everything was intimately connected. The events that were seen in the sky, so the rising and settings of constellations, for example, were seen as absolutely entwined with the passings of the seasons and the life cycles of of creatures on Earth. So there was that sense of a kind of holistic cosmos, Earth and sky that that humans were intimately a part of.
1: Are there any 21st century analogs for that holistic view or is that precisely the problem that there aren't?
0: Yeah, there's an interesting one. I think it might be part of the problem that there aren't many. Um, you know, we, now we have this view of a sort of physical universe out there, the sort of sci- the scientific universe, if you like, made of particles and, and forces. And, and we're sort of separate observers of that. Um, and I think most stories that you read now kind of go along with that cosmology. But, you know, human beliefs haven't always been been that way and there are lots of um schools of thought now even suggesting that the universe isn't necessarily as simple as that you know we've still got the problem of consciousness for example uh, and you have panpsychists who would see consciousness as a fundamental part of the physical universe you know one that can't necessarily be measured by physical instruments but nonetheless a fundamental part of reality you've got some quantum physics theories that see the universe not as having started with the big bang and run through billions of years until life arrived, but something that's continually being created all the time through our interaction with it. And I would love to see more stories that play around with some of those concepts. I think, I mean, Avatar is quite a nice one in that there's a bit of a sort of panpsychist idea of, this kind of global consciousness that everyone can connect into it doesn't really so much look at the stars but I think that's a nice way of dramatizing uh, a different kind of, of cosmology but certainly the idea that we you know create reality as we experience it I think you could maybe do some really interesting things with stories there and I haven't really seen much of that so far
1: Yes. uh, uh, Going back to that last chapter, uh, a lot of the things that you mentioned, uh, panpsychism, the the idea that that there's a sliding scale for consciousness that goes down to the smallest level, perhaps even including things that we think of uh, normally as inanimate. In quantum Bayesianism or Cubism, the idea that that uh, the observer is uh, very much an integral part of how the universe is perceived, and, and integrated information theory, which kind of goes along with panpsychism, the idea that you might be able to measure the complexity of a system and that that can map onto the level of consciousness. And then you've got the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics, the the Bill and Ted (laughs) theory of how the universe works, where you can go down different forks in the road. I really think that that's ripe material for folks who write science fiction to turn into new stories. Uh, If you were a fiction writer who wanted to capitalize on the themes of the human cosmos, uh, are there any plots that you might be able to pass along?
0: Oh, that's an interesting one. I mean, just because you mentioned many worlds. So I thought that... um The series Devs was a really interesting take on, on many worlds. You know, there was quite a lot of quantum physics in that and quite a lot of the different theories and looking at determinism and are all of our actions mapped out in advance? So, you know, what would the consequences of that be if you could have a computer that could literally predict everything that you were going to do in the future? How would that affect our sense of sort of who we are and our responsibility? So that was really interesting.
1: I think it was many, many years ago, I was talking with a quantum physicist who looked into the theories of time travel, and uh, I believe he told me that Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was probably the closest that came to uh, what his perspective on time travel would be. So, go figure in terms of how science fiction intersects with, uh, with science fact, or at least science speculation. That's kind of the way it works yeah. sometimes.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, I suppose the point of a lot of science fiction is not about the time travel itself. It's just giving you a way to sort of put issues that are quite close to us in a different setting so you can explore them from a different perspective. And and that's something that's been happening since ancient times. Actually, if if, if you look at stories with aliens in them, for example, um, I think the, the earliest known story of interplanetary travel was Lucian back in the second century, Uh um, and he wrote about um, a story of being carried by whirlwind to the moon and finding men who rode on three-headed birds and fought inhabitants of the sun That was a kind of satire aimed at the exaggerated travellers' tales of the time. So he was just taking that to the logical extreme to show how ridiculous some of these travellers' tales were. So it was a story about aliens, but it was actually making a point about what was happening back on Earth. And then Voltaire in the 18th century, he wrote a story about an alien with more than a thousand senses, And again, he was really um, satirizing sort of humanity's supposed intelligence, you know, we think we're so clever. (laughs) Um, uh, So again, it was more, uh, he had something to say about humanity rather than the aliens. And and I guess that's, you know, a common theme that you see in a lot of science fiction.
1: Right. And going back to the Bible, uh, when it was written that Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air, uh, some folks have interpreted that as a UFO sighting. So uh, go figure. Um, Do you think that, (laughs) do you think that, uh, you know, there's so much uh, uh, effort being devoted to trying to find traces of life on on Mars or Europa or looking for signals from far-off stars, uh, that certainly would have an effect on uh, our view of the cosmos if if we did get a positive result in that search for life beyond Earth. Some people think it would be world-shattering, and some people would probably say, ah, we We know all about that from Star Wars and Star Trek. Uh, So uh, where do you come down on that?
0: Oh my goodness, it's such an interesting question. I mean, humanity has really gone through a whole series of phases in terms of like through history, in terms of our attitude to extraterrestrial life. You've got sort of phases in history, like the Enlightenment, for example, where everyone's convinced that there's millions of planets out there swarming with life. And then you go through Periods, probably the 1970s and 80s, where everyone's convinced that there's definitely no life and we're the only ones. And I think we're now coming back into more of a, wow, there really could be life out there. You know, we're realizing how many um, planets there are outside our solar system. Um, we're sort of finding not life, but certainly some of the ingredients that might be needed on, on Mars, for example. Um, so, yeah, every, every, was- where we're looking we're not finding life but we're, we're realizing how possible it, it is and on earth finding you know life in lots of different ecosystems from deep sea vents to deep in the sort of rocks of the of the earth that where we it would never have been expected to happen so I don't know if it would be so revolutionary because we've been thinking about it and yeah watching stories about it for so long It's it's really yeah I'm sorry, I'm not giving you a very good answer.
1: Oh, no, that's a great answer. Don't, <laughs> uh, no, don't worry about that. Uh, and, and a little closer to home, there is the issue of uh, sending folks back to the moon. Uh, I, I think that that did have a significant effect on people's view of the cosmos beyond our planet. Just to know Mm. that there was somebody up there, uh, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and all those other cats uh, working on the surface of the moon. uh, I I think that had at least a temporary uh, effect on the way that... People looked at the universe, and uh, we may be coming back to that age where we can look up and and see places in the sky where we know Humans have walked. I, I'm wondering how that would affect things. That that may even have a more realistic chance of uh, affecting the way that we view the cosmos than than uh, the theoretical discovery of uh, microbes someplace else. Uh, I, I don't yeah.
0: know. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think it makes a difference that having people. Up in up in space, um, rather than just machines. So it's kind of going back to that ancient view of the heavens of, of seeing, like you know, these characters and people in the in the, in the stars in the skies. And then we when we really do, um, I think that that matters. And and I think as well as us looking up and knowing that there are people walking on the moon or wherever it is, there's also that perspective of looking back down on Earth. Um, which has been so influential that view of earth from space you know the photographs of earth rise for example or the blue marble um and so this is the famous overview effect so with when astronauts go up into space and look down on earth these are you know hard-headed technically trained people and yet they come back absolutely passionate and poetic with a completely changed perspective on our planet they start talking about the earth as this fragile haven often as a living being in its own right that we need to protect so more than just sending machines i think when we send people into space that really does have the possibility to to profoundly change our perspective of our place in the cosmos
1: Well, I can't think of a better way to close off our conversation by observing that, uh, in the end, it's as much about us humans as it is about the cosmos, at least in terms of our uh, all-too-human perspective of the cosmos. And and so, I want to thank you so much, uh, Joe, and uh, really recommend the human cosmos for, for anybody who does want to delve into the human stories behind our understanding of the universe. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much.
1: For more from Jo Marchant, including a link to her book as well as her recommendation for the Cosmic Log Used Book Club. Click on over to cosmiclog.com and check out fictionscienceclub.com for more episodes of the Fiction Science Podcast. We'll be adding more interviews from the intersection of science and fiction in the months ahead. So until next time, this is Alan Boyle telling you to watch the skies.